Let's pray for God's blessing on our time in his word, please. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for the words of eternal life that you've given to us in the pages of Scripture. We thank you for preserving these words for us. May we receive their truth with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the last sermon in this series on lawful oaths and vows and church membership vows and elder vows. And uh, after I, I preached last Sunday morning, uh, Jim Baird asked me, so are you going to beat up on yourself for the last uh, service? I said, yes, I am. First Thessalonians 2, 4 through 12. This is God's word. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you, who, you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. May God bless the reading of his word. We now come to the final message in this four-sermon series on oaths and vows. And the first message covered the biblical teaching on oaths and vows. Our word is supposed to be our bond, what we say should carry enough authority that people trust in it. Our no should be no, our yes should be yes. But on rare and special occasions, we're required to swear oaths and to take vows, calling God that we are going to do what we're going to do, what we promise to do. We do this for weddings. We do it for holding public office. We do it for church membership when you become an elder or a deacon. And this morning, if you become a pastor of a local congregation, you have special vows that you take. Now, the first four of the vows are identical to the vows that are taken by all elders and deacons, but then there's a few more after that that are unique to a pastor. And so I want to walk through all of these with you. I'm going to read them to you, and we'll talk about the biblical basis for each one of these and how important they are. The first vow, the first question that you're asked when you become a pastor of a local church is, have you been induced, as far as you know your heart, to seek the office of the holy ministry from love to God and a sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his son. Men being ordained to pastoral ministry do need to have a sense of inward calling. It needs to be something that they desire and aspire to do. First Timothy chapter 3 says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must be blameless. The husband of one wife, Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. They need to be someone who loves the Bible. They need to love the truth. They need to love theology. And they need to love their church. 
A man who just really isn't all that committed to his church. He doesn't show up at its services. He doesn't show up at its Bible studies, its activities, its prayer meetings, etc. Is probably not called to the ministry. A true desire for the office of bishop will be seen not so much in a man's intellectual gifts as much as in his love and in his burden for those who are already part of his church where he's a member. In other words, his desire to serve will be right on the face of his church life and his priorities. And as this vow says, have you been induced as far as you know your own heart to seek the office of the holy ministry from love to God and a sincere desire to promote his glory and the gospel of his son? When I was a divinity student on the campus of Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, Dr. Robert Raymond my favorite contemporary theologian who uh, went on to glory just a few years ago. He spoke for a few days at chapel. And this man was a theological giant and one of the best writers of theology I have ever read in all of church history, even to this very day. And during those three chapel messages he gave, he encouraged every divinity student there to memorize the passage that I read for you in our scripture reading. And it was not what I thought it was going to be. He said, guys, I want to encourage you to take to heart a very important passage of Scripture. I thought for sure it would be Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 or something like that. A passage that all good Calvinists would want to memorize. And he said, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 12. And I remember sitting there going, what does that say again? 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 to 12. Listen to it again. I just want to read it to you again. And he read it very slowly, methodically, passionately. He said, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech. You hear that? We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our own authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul the Apostle was not just a giant intellect of a man and a great theologian. He was a pastor as well. He had that heart for the people. He had just as big of a heart for his congregations as he did for the true gospel and for theology. In fact, those two things always go together. To have a big heart for God's truth and the theology of the Bible is to have a love for the people of God. And if those two things don't go together, something's very wrong. True knowledge of the Bible and of all that it teaches, it must impact our hearts and give us a deep love for our fellow images of God, especially the sheep of Christ all around us in our churches. A man called to the ministry will love his local church in much the same way that he loves his Lord and Savior in the Bible. So that's the first oath that you take. Have you been induced 
to desire this office of the ministry out of love for God and a love to, to promote his glory. The next question all ministers of the gospel are asked, do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church? Whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account. That's a serious oath. You're going to stand up and dare to say yes to that one. You have to count the cost. Now these oaths that I'm reading to you, they're identical to the oaths that are presented in the Bible Presbyterian Church, the church I was first ordained in. That's the denomination I came from long ago. This is the oath that that ought to cause some degree of hesitation. Some degree of hesitation on the part of men seeking this office. What does it mean to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church? Whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account. What does that mean? And we can always allow for some measure of development and theological development in the finer points of theology when it comes to ministers of the gospel, but not on the gospel. Not on the gospel itself and not on the truths that are directly related to it. The doctrine of God, the doctrines of the covenant of works, covenant of grace, the doctrine of sin and the fall, the doctrines of creation and providence, the doctrine of God's sovereign decree, unconditional election, the doctrine of the Trinity, the person and work of Christ, the blessed doctrine of justification by faith alone, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of what saving faith is, repentance unto life, what Christian liberty is, what biblical worship is. Those are essential truths not open to negotiation, not open to compromise, not open to discussion. There's a text of scripture that frequently jumps off the page when I think about this particular vow. Paul said, of course, being guided by the Holy Spirit, listen to this carefully, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, what does it mean to be immovable? That Greek word that's translated immovable is the word ametakinetos. Very often, if you have a child that's constantly bouncing their leg or wiggling around, we say that that child is very kinetic. They're very kinetic. What is a pastor supposed to be when it comes to his theology, to his understanding of the gospel, to what he preaches about those issues? He's the opposite of that. He doesn't wiggle. He doesn't move. The commitment of the Christian, especially of the pastor, to the essentials of the gospel must be the opposite of kinetic. They are ah, metakinetas. They are to be not constantly moving, but standing perfectly still. The biblical imagery is that we are planted firmly upon the foundation of the truth of God, and it's always described in Scripture as a rock. It doesn't move. You know, my backyard is filled with weeds, and I, I live next door to a guy that looks like a ghostbuster. He's got the big, huge backpack of stuff, and he, he annihilates every individual weed in his yard. And you can see where the line is. There's no fence or anything. I have all the weeds, and, and he doesn't. And I always tell him, you know, the bees need to eat something, man. I mean, if you kill everything, all these poor bugs are going to die. But everybody likes to play with the little, the little round balls of seeds, right? When they pop up in your yard and you, you blow on them and they blow everywhere. And there's always one that will stick. And every time I see my kids playing with them or I pick one up and you blow it, 
That's being tossed to and fro by the winds of doctrine. And the one that sticks, no matter how much you shake it or blow on it, that's the pastor. The winds of doctrine will change and shift. They will blow and blow and blow. And everybody blows this way and everybody blows that way. But he stands still. He is amedakinetos. He is immovable. Will not deviate from the gospel. He stands upon the rock. Psalm 40 verse 2. He also brought me out of a horrible pit. Out of the miry clay. And set my feet upon a rock. And established my steps. I will not move from them. Jesus refers to the foundations upon which people build their lives. Some build on sand. And when the winds blow and the waters rise and the rains come, they have no foundation and they're washed away. Not so with the Christian minister. He is immovable in the truth. Malachi 3.6, I am Yahweh, I do not change, he says. God doesn't change, his character doesn't change, the Bible doesn't change. Our convictions about the gospel, like Christ, do not change. Proverbs 24.21 says, my son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change. Don't associate with those given to change. This is exactly what changes the core essentials of the gospel in every generation. People are given to change. And people want to be cutting edge. and the, the latest new thing in theology. The latest new writer in theology. Always being proposed in the name of doing good, but they do nothing but destroy. The minister of the gospel cannot love change for the sake of change. They're always satisfied. They're always content with the gospel, with those glorious, solid truths that they've worked long and labored hard to mine out of Scripture, and they understand them. And what the Bible says to us today, it said to our forefathers 300 years ago, it'll say to those long after we're all dead, they'll rejoice in the same truths and the same gospel. We're always satisfied with those truths, those solid truths that are the anchors of our weary souls. Men who find themselves constantly sidetracked by the latest fad, Cannot be pastors. It can't be. The pastor is for men who have studied the essentials of the gospel and they are settled on them. Settled. The great Charles Spurgeon in his great book, Lectures to My Students, lecture number 16, is titled, The Need of Decisions for the Truth. And what that title means is not we should try to get decisions like in a revival meeting or something. What he means is we need to be decided that this is the truth and I'm not moving from it. He wrote this, quote, We have a fixed faith to preach, my brethren, and we are sent forth with a definite message from God. We are not left to fabricate the message as we go along. We are not sent forth by our master with a general commission arranged on this fashion. As you shall think in your heart and invent in your head, so preach. Keep abreast of the times. Whatever the people want to hear, tell them that, and they shall be saved. Verily we read not so. There is something definite in the Bible. It is not quite a lump of wax to be shaped at our will, or a roll of cloth to be cut according to the prevailing fashion. Your great thinkers evidently look upon Scripture as a box of letters for them to play with and make of what they like, or a wizard's bottle out of which they may pour anything they choose, from atheism up to spiritualism. Need I remind you he's saying this from like 1856? What would he say today? He goes on, and I agree with this. I'm too old-fashioned to fall down and worship that theory. There's something told me in the Bible told me for certain 
Not put before me with a but or perhaps or an if or a maybe and 50,000 suspicions behind it. So that really the long and the short of it is it may not be true at all. But rather reveal to me as infallible fact, which must be believed, the opposite of which is deadly error and comes from the father of lies. Believing, therefore, that there is such a thing as truth and such a thing as falsehood, that there are truths in the Bible and that the gospel consists in something definite, which is to be believed by men. It becomes us to be decided as to what we teach and to teach it in a decided manner. We have to deal with men who will die and be either lost or saved. And they certainly will not be saved by erroneous doctrine. We have to deal with God whose servants we are. And we will not be honored. He will not be honored by our delivering falsehoods. Neither will he give us a reward and say, listen to this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast mangled the gospel as judiciously as any man that ever lived before thee. We stand in a very solemn position and ours should be the spirit of old Micaiah who said, as the Lord my God liveth before whom I stand, whatsoever the Lord saith unto me, that I will speak. Neither less nor more than God's word are we called to state, but that word we are bound to declare in a spirit which convinces the sons of men that whatever they may think of it, we believe God and are not to be shaken in our confidence in him, end quote. Our forefathers wrote stirring words, didn't they? When fish die in fast-moving streams, where do they go? Wherever the stream takes them. We have a whole country of dead fish today. And we have a church with lots of dead fish in it. Where are they all going? Well, wherever the fast-moving stream of American depravity takes them next. Pastors especially. Leaders of flocks of sheep, the shepherds, they have to lead the sheep away from that kind of danger. And they have to lead them against the cultural changes and the mega shifts. They have to stand their ground and do exactly what the Holy Spirit commanded them to do for their entire ministerial lives. It never stops. 2 Timothy 4 verses 2, some of the last things that Paul wrote before he lost his head and died. He said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. He says to Timothy, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, fulfill your ministry. Ministers have to do that knowing that the warnings of Scripture always hold true. We saw Paul's exhortation to the church at Ephesus in Acts 20 last Sunday. The promise, he promised them, after I leave, savage wolves will arise among you. And they're not going to spare the flock. And they're going to speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Another passage we looked at, actually didn't look at last week, 2 Peter 2.1 There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. At the end of the greatest treatment of theology in the New Testament, the book of Romans, Paul said in Romans 16, right at the end of the book, 
16, verse 17 and 18. He says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, told Timothy in the same letter, the last letter he wrote before he died, he told him, evil men and imposters, 2 Timothy 3, 13. Evil men and imposters, fake Christians, fake ministers, will arise among you, growing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. As one guy told me before I was ordained, you've got to be nuts to do this. Really, you have to deal with that all the time? Yeah, all the time. Pastors are going to have forces working against them from all sides. The cultural forces from the outside, wolves arising from the inside, secret heresy coming in from the inside. What's he supposed to do? Well, he swore to God to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, no matter what persecution or opposition ever comes against them. And I want to tell you, the temptation to engage in pragmatic compromise for the sake of peace, it never stops. It will never stop. It never stops. That temptation is always there. But if you swear this, I will maintain the truths of the gospel. That means you're that little seed on that little ball of seeds and all the other seeds got blown away. And no matter how hard the wind blows, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not going to move. We're not moving. Vows 7 and 8. Do you engage to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties as a Christian and as a minister of the gospel, whether personal or relational, private or public, and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before the flock of which God shall make you overseer? Are you now willing to take charge of this church, agreeable to your declaration when accepting their call? And do you, relying upon God for strength, promise to discharge it to discharge all the duties of a pastor. You know, Peter was a pastor himself, the apostle Peter, an elder. He said in 1 Peter 5, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, listen, but being examples to the flock. That's the most convicting part of all of it. You're supposed to be the guy everyone in the church wants to be like. It's another very convicting thing to to agree to. In public and in private, you'll be an example to the flock in the way you conduct yourself, the way you conduct your marriage, the way you respond to heartache, the way you respond to trials, the way you respond to conflict in your church, and the way you deal with everything in your life. You're supposed to be an example. The minister swears to walk with exemplary piety before the flock that they're overseeing. Not lording it over, but as an example of godliness to them. Pretty convicting stuff. Okay, now it's your turn to get beat up on for a minute. So here's the questions the congregation has to all answer. Do you, the people of this congregation, continue to profess your readiness to receive blank whom you have called to be your pastor? Do you promise to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love and to submit to him in the due exercise of discipline? 
You promised to encourage him in his labors and to assist his endeavors for your instruction and spiritual edification. Do you engage to continue to him while he is your pastor that competent worldly maintenance which you have promised and to furnish him with whatever you may see needful for the honor of religion and for his comfort among you? Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. It would be unprofitable for you. It would be unprofitable for me. It would be unprofitable for the cause of God. If you refused to receive the word of truth from my mouth, from the mouth of your pastor with meekness and love, it'd be unprofitable for you if you tried to discourage your pastor instead of encourage your pastor. Now, what are the duties that a pastor is supposed to perform? Our book of church order following many passages of scripture describes the duties in these words. It belongs to the office of elder, both severally and jointly, to watch diligently over one another and the flock committed to their charge. The pastor is to watch out for and keep his eyes on the people of the local church. The pastor should be interested in how people are doing, generally, spiritually, but also how they're doing in life, how they're doing in their relationships, in their marriages, with their children, their church life, their jobs. Why does he do that? The book of church order goes on, that no corruption of doctrine or of morals enters in. A crucial part of shepherding is making sure the doctrine and teaching of the faith is not corrupted. It is vital that a pastor knows scripture and that he knows his confession of faith, the Westminster Standards in our case. In order to keep the doctrines of the faith clear and crisp in his mind, he ought to read the Bible constantly, read good theology constantly, and keep his nose to the wind so he can anticipate and refute the false doctrines of his age. He is to study the Bible, to preach it and teach it and defend it with the goal that every person in the congregation is united in what they believe about everything. That's the goal. Corruption in doctrine and in morals is a constant hazard among the people of God. Israel's entire history bears that out. The whole history of the Christian church after the time of Christ bears that out. The pull of worldliness was all around them just as it's all around us. Because they did not fully obey God and purge the land of Canaan of its idolatrous and wicked inhabitants, those wicked inhabitants' ideas, their sins, their compromises, their corruptions, were a constant snare to the people of God. Today, we live in an apostate country that's doing everything it can think of to erase the Christian faith from its past and its present. The task of holding back corrupt doctrine and corrupt morals is a huge one, to say the least. Every pastor feels the weight of it every day. There is a haunting, haunting theme that Jesus spoke about and the apostles spoke about with regard to corruption and doctrine and morals, and it's the theme of leaven. Leaven, yeast, that slowly works its way through the whole lump. Paul said in Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What did he write Galatians about? Hey, these Judaizing heretics, they believed in justification by faith alone. They would have told you they believed it. You have to have faith in Christ to be saved. Couldn't be saved without faith. Couldn't be saved without Christ. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We believe it's grace alone. They just added this one tiny little thing to that. You also need to be circumcised. 
And Paul says a little bit of leaven, a little bit of that will destroy everything. It'll leaven the whole lump. He was utterly intolerant of errors on the gospel. He knew no compromise when it came to the gospel. Utterly intolerant of the smallest deviation from the precious truth of justification by faith alone, by faith in Christ's righteousness, being what gets us into heaven completely and entirely apart from our works, our fruits, our perseverance, or anything. Indeed, a little compromise, a little leaven will destroy everything. How passionate was Paul for that truth of the gospel, keeping the fruit of faith separate from faith itself? He said in Galatians 5, 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. He says, hey, if I preached that, yes, you need Jesus to be saved, can't be saved without him, you got to believe in him, that he died for you, and then you also need to be a little bit faithful, and, and you got to do these works, and without that you can't get into heaven, they're necessary for getting into heaven. He says, then the offense of the cross has ceased, and I wouldn't be persecuted for that, because that's what everybody believes already anyway. But then he gets downright nasty. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. That's just a mean thing to say. Why is he so worked up? Why is he so exercised about this? Because the salvation of every human being in the world is at stake. It's okay to get a little hot under the collar when you talk about the perfection of the work of Christ. That oath goes on. They must exercise government and discipline and take oversight, not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church, but also the church generally when called thereunto. In other words, you've got to serve on presbytery committees. That's code for what that is talking about. <laughs> after the New Testament was finished and after the apostles of Christ died, you know that tradition of writing letters to churches? That continued among the early, the early Christians. Polycarp, Ignatius, Clement, Many others, they wrote letters to churches. You can read Polycarp's letter to the church at Philippi. His, his, his own version of you know, Philippians, that's uninspired. They took care of each other. They, they had a concern for other churches. Pastors must not ever, ever, ever become competitive with other pastors, for church members, for attention, for fame, or anything like that. And it's very sad. It's very sad in America. We have such an odd, somewhat unique historically Phenomenon Here in America, churches are almost like niche marketing. Like, we attract people with the latte bar and this or that, and I wear a Hawaiian shirt and have a parrot on my shoulder or preach from a recliner with a cigar in one hand and a beer in the other. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? Should we compete with other churches for, for things like that? No, never. Pastors must have it in the depths of their soul. Their most earnest desire is to see all churches that love the gospel and preach it, that they all thrive. That they all glorify God. Pride and envy, they have no place among pastors. Everything is for the glory of God and that Christ would not suffer loss. That great fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Like all the commandments, it carries a lot more duties than people realize when they first hear it. It's not merely directed to just parents and their children or children to their parents. The commandment also includes the duties of parents towards children, the duties of superiors to their inferiors, the duties of bosses to their workers, elders to the congregations, parents to kids, kids to parents, the duties of inferiors to superiors, and the duties of equals towards each other. And pastors are equals to each other. They're equals to each other. And they're always to be for one another, not against one another, unless one is teaching false doctrine. Then we have to be against such people. 
Our Lord Catechism, question 132, asks, what are the sins of equals? So people that are of equal authority to one another, how can they sin against each other? The sins of equals are, besides the neglecting of the duties required, the undervaluing the worth, envying the gifts, grieving at the advancement or, or prosperity one of another, and usurping preeminence one over another. Pastors have much the same concern for Christ's church in general as they do for their own congregation, we're supposed to. That oath goes on. The ministry of the diaconate is to operate under the authority of this government and in cooperation with the session. Pastors are to make use of the deacons so that they're able to stay focused on the ministry of the word and prayer. Always remember, that's why you have deacons, so that the elders can focus on the teaching of scripture and prayer for the church, the spiritual oversight of the congregation. It goes on, elders should take care for the practice of biblical worship and guard the pulpit from error. They should visit people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthy example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted and to make disciples. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. These are monumental tasks, thoroughly biblical. And this is why every pastor, every elder, every deacon I've ever known, we all struggle with a sense of feeling overwhelmed by it and somewhat inadequate. And in a sense that we're always failing something or someone, God or someone in our congregations. Now to conclude this series on oaths and vows, I want to emphasize to you the reason. Why do we take oaths and vows? There are certain very important, godly, worthwhile tasks that every person, when they undertake them, they ought to be willing to swear an oath that they will do it. Because they're tasks that people tend to give up on. They're tasks that people get discouraged about and say, forget it, I'm done. Living in a fallen world, it makes everything, even good things, hard. The temptation to throw in the towel will be great with marriage. The temptation to throw in the towel and be done with being a civil servant, with being a church member, being a ruling elder, being a deacon, being a pastor. It's because these things are hard that we swear oaths to do them faithfully. We promise God that we will keep our word. We will do our duty. You know, we did a wedding here yesterday. And we've lost track. Me and Chris Lamb are trying to figure out how many people have actually married in the, in the love tour now. And I don't remember how, how many. But every time we go through those vows, I just think these, these young people have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> Like, this is so serious. Like, do they, do they really? Everyone's all smiles and happy and bouncing around and stuff. I'm like, man. <clears throat> we call God to witness. We're going to do what we promised. And may God bring vengeance on us if we don't. That's what you just said. You swore to God and witnesses. You called all three persons of the Godhead to witness against you. You swear by his name to do these good things that we know are going to be hard. And they're going to be hard to finish. And we have to always consider very carefully exactly what it is that we're swearing to before we go ahead and do it. Because God will hold us to our word. Now in closing, I want you to see an example of this. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Joshua 9. Right after the book of Deuteronomy there. Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 to 20. 
I want you to see how serious God takes oaths and promises. How serious it is to him. Joshua 9, verses 1 through 20. Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Listen to God's word here, please. Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, and on all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. Then they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon and to Og king of Bashan who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. This, our bread, was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins which we have filled were new, and behold, they are torn. These are clothes, and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. Okay, stop there. They're lying! Look at verse 14. Here's the big fatal error. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. It came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living in, within their land. Okay, so stop there. They discovered these guys just lied their faces off to us. Verse 17, and the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Chephirah and Beeroth and Kirjath-Jerim. Sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. So even if people trick you, if you swear an oath by God, you got to keep it. We're a whole nation of promise breakers, oath breakers. The church is filled these days with traitors, with breakers of sacred oaths, my final word to you, with the help of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose sacred name we swear our oaths, may not a single one of us here ever 
be numbered among such people. And let us always be thankful that even the blood of Christ can forgive every promise and every oath that we've ever broken. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you that Christ is sufficient to save us when we swear in your name and take oaths in your name. Yes, we are forgiven. We are accepted in Christ. And yet the temporal consequences can be very hard for breaking oaths. Let us always weigh very carefully what we promise by the holy name of the triune God to do, to know that you will hold us to it. And we thank you that you swore an oath by your own nature to save us from our sins. And that is the anchor of our soul. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.